You are listening to the Philosophy Podcast presented by LearnOutloud.com. Here we will periodically showcase audio renditions of great works from philosophers such as Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Kant, Nietzsche, and beyond. For a complete listing of the Learn Out Loud podcasts with links to subscribe, please visit our website at www.learnoutloud.com podcast. Thank you for listening. Essays of Michel de Montaigne Published in 1580 Translated by Charles Cotton That to study philosophy is to learn to die Cicero says that to study philosophy is nothing but to prepare oneself to die. The reason of which is because study and contemplation do in some sort withdraw from us our soul and employ it separately from the body which is a kind of apprenticeship and a resemblance of death or else because all the wisdom and reasoning in the world do in the end conclude in this point to teach us not to fear to die. And to say the truth, either our reason mocks us, or it ought to have no other aim but our contentment only, not to endeavor anything but, in sum, to make us live well and, as the Holy Scripture says, at our ease. All the opinions of the world agree in this, that pleasure is our end, though we make use of diverse means to attain it, For who would give ear to him that should propose affliction and misery for his end? The controversies and disputes of the philosophical sects upon this point are merely verbal. There is more in them of opposition and obstinacy than is consistent with so sacred a profession. Let the philosophers say what they will. The thing at which we all aim, even in virtue, is pleasure. It amuses me to rattle in ears this word which they so nauseate to, and if it signifies some supreme pleasure and contentment, it is more due to the assistance of virtue than to any other assistance whatever. This pleasure, for being more gay, more sinewy, more robust, and more manly, is only the more seriously voluptuous, and we ought give it the name of pleasure, as that which is more favorable, gentle, and natural, and not that from which we have denominated it. The other and meaner pleasure, if it could deserve this fair name, it ought to be by way of competition, and not a privilege. I find it less exempt from traverses and inconveniences than virtue itself, and besides that the enjoyment is more momentary, fluid, and frail, it has its watchings, fasts, and labors, its sweat and its blood, and moreover has particular to itself so many sorts of sharp and wounding passions as equal it to the severest penance. And we mistake if we think that these incommodities serve it for a spur and a seasoning to its sweetness, or say, when we come to virtue, that like consequences and difficulties overwhelm and render it austere and inaccessible, whereas much more aptly than in voluptuousness they ennoble, sharpen, and heighten the perfect and divine pleasure they procure us. He renders himself unworthy of it, who will counterpoise its cost with its fruit, and neither understands the blessing nor how to use it. Those who preach to us that the quest of it is craggy, difficult, and painful, but its fruition pleasant, what do they mean by that but to tell us that it is always unpleasing? For what human means will ever attain its enjoyment? The most perfect have been fain to content themselves to aspire unto it, and to approach it only, without ever possessing it. But they are deceived, seeing that of all the pleasures we know, the very pursuit is pleasant." The felicity and beatitude that glitters in virtue shines throughout all her appurtenances and avenues, even to the first entry and utmost limits. Now, of all the benefits that virtue confers upon us, the contempt of death is one of the greatest, 
as the means that accommodates human life with a soft and easy tranquillity, and gives us a pure and pleasant taste of living, without which all other pleasure would be extinct. Which is the reason why all the rules center and concur in this one article. And although they all in like manner, with common accord, teach us also to despise pain, poverty, and the other accidents to which human life is subject, it is not, nevertheless, with the same solicitude, as well by reason these accidents are not of so great necessity, the greater part of mankind passing over their whole lives without ever knowing what poverty is, and some without sorrow or sickness, as Xenophilus, the musician, who lived a hundred and six years in a perfect and continual health, as also because, at the worst, death can, whenever we please, cut short and put an end to all other inconveniences. But as to death, it is inevitable, and consequently, if it frights us, tis a perpetual torment for which there is no sort of consolation. There is no way by which it may not reach us. We may continually turn our heads this way and that, as in a suspected country. Our courts of justice often send back condemned criminals to be executed upon the place where the crime was committed, but carry them to fine houses by the way. Do you think they can relish it? and that the fatal end of their journey being continually before their eyes would not alter and deprave their palate from tasting these regalios? The end of our race is death. Tis the necessary object of our aim which, if it fright us, how is it possible to advance a step without a fit of ague? The remedy the vulgar use is not to think on't. But from what brutish stupidity can they derive so gross a blindness? They must bridle the ass by the tail. Tis no wonder if he often be trapped in the pitfall. They affright people with the very mention of death, and many cross themselves as it were the name of the devil. And because the making a man's will is in reference to dying, not a man will be persuaded to take a pen in hand to that purpose, till the physician has passed sentence upon, and totally given him over. And then, betwixt in terror, God knows in how fit a condition of understanding he is to do it. The Romans, by reason that this poor syllable, death, sounded so harshly to their ears, and seemed so ominous, found a way to soften, and spin it out by a periphrasis, and instead of pronouncing, such a one is dead, said, such a one has lived, or such a one has ceased to live. For, provided there was any mention of life in the case, though past, it carried yet some sound of consolation. And it is from them that we have borrowed our expression, the late Monsieur such-and-such-a-one. Peradventure, as the saying is, the term we have lived is worth our money. I was born betwixt eleven and twelve o'clock on the last day of February, 1533, according to our computation, beginning the year the first of January, and it is now but just fifteen days since I was complete nine and thirty years old. I make account to live at least as many more. In the meantime, to trouble a man's self with the thought of a thing so far off were folly. But what? Young and old die upon the same terms. No one departs out of life otherwise than if he had but just before entered into it. Neither is any man so old and decrepit who, having heard of Methuselah, does not think he has twenty good years to come. Fool that thou art! Who has assured unto thee the term of life? Thou dependest upon physicians' tales, rather consult effects and experience. According to the common course of things, tis long since that thou hast lived by extraordinary favor. Thou hast already outlived the ordinary term of life, and that it is so, reckon up thy acquaintance. How many more have died before they arrived at thy age than have attained unto it? And of those 
who have ennobled their lives by their renown. Take but an account, and I dare lay a wager thou wilt find more who've died before than after five-and-thirty years of age. It is full, both of reason and piety, too, to take example by the humanity of Jesus Christ himself. Now he ended his life at three-and-thirty years. The greatest man that was no more than a man, Alexander, died also at the same age. How many several ways has death to surprise us? So frequent and common examples passing every day before our eyes, how is it possible a man should disengage himself from the thought of death, or avoid fancying that it has us every moment by the throat? What matter is it, you will say, which way it comes to pass, provided a man does not terrify himself with the expectation? For my part, I am of this mind. And if a man could by any means avoid it, though by creeping under a calf's skin I am one that should not be ashamed of the shift, all I aim at is to pass my time at my ease, and the recreations that will most contribute to it, I take hold of as little glorious and exemplary as you will. But tis folly to think of doing anything that way. They go, they come, they gallop and dance, and not a word of death. All this is very fine, but withal, when it comes either to themselves, their wives, their children, or friends, surprising them at unawares and unprepared, then what torment, what outcries, what madness and despair! Did you ever see anything so subdued, so changed, and so confounded? A man must, therefore, make more early provision for it. Were it an enemy that could be avoided, I would advise them to borrow arms even of cowardice itself. But seeing it is not, and that it will catch you as well flying and playing the poltroon as standing to it like an honest man, and seeing that no temper of arms is a proof to secure us, let us learn bravely to stand our ground and fight him and to begin to deprive him of the greatest advantage he has over us, let us take away quite contrary to the common course. Let us disarm him of his novelty and strangeness. Let us converse and be familiar with him, and have nothing so frequent in our thoughts as death. Upon all occasions represent him to our imagination in his every shape, at the stumbling of a horse, at the falling of a tile, at the least prick with a pin, let us presently consider, and say to ourselves, Well, and what if it had been death itself? And thereupon let us encourage and fortify ourselves. Let us evermore, amidst our jollity and feasting, set the remembrance of our frail condition before our eyes, never suffering ourselves to be so far transported with our delights, but that we have some intervals of reflecting upon— and considering how many several ways this jollity of ours tends to death, and with how many dangers it threatens it. The Egyptians were wont to do after this manner, who, in the height of their feasting and mirth, caused a dried skeleton of a man to be brought into the room, to serve as a memento to their guests. Where death waits for us is uncertain. Let us look for him everywhere. The premeditation of death is the premeditation of liberty. He who has learned to die has unlearned to serve. To know how to die delivers us from all subjection and constraint. In truth, in all things, if nature do not help a little, it is very hard for art and industry to perform anything to purpose. I am in my own nature, not melancholic, but meditative, and there is nothing I have more continually entertained myself withal than imaginations of death even in the most wanton time of my age. In the company of ladies, and at games, some have perhaps thought me possessed with some jealousy, 
or the uncertainty of some hope whilst I was entertaining myself with the remembrance of someone surprised a few days before with the burning fever of which he died, returning from an entertainment like this with his head full of idle fancies of love and jollity as mine was then, and that, for aught I knew, the same destiny was attending me. Yet did not this thought wrinkle my forehead any more than any other? But with often turning and returning them in one's mind, they, at last, become so familiar as to be no trouble at all. Otherwise I, for my part, should be in a perpetual flight and frenzy. For never man was so distrustful of his life, never man so uncertain as to its duration. Every minute, methinks, I am escaping, and it eternally runs in my mind that what may be done tomorrow may be done today. Hazards and dangers do, in truth, little or nothing hasten our end. And if we consider how many thousands more remain and hang over our heads, besides the accident that immediately threatens us, we shall find that the sound and the sick, those that are abroad at sea and those that sit by the fire, those who are engaged in battle, and those who sit idle at home, are the one as near it as the other. For anything I have to do before I die, the longest leisure would appear to be too short, were it but an hour's business I had to do. A friend of mine, the other day, turning over my tablets, found therein a memorandum of something I would have done after my decease, whereupon I told him, as it were really true, that though I was no more than a league's distance from my own house, and merry and well, yet when that thing came into my head, I made haste to write it down there, because I was not certain to live till I came home. As a man that am eternally brooding over my own thoughts, and confine them to my own particular concerns, I am at all hours as well prepared as I am ever like to be. And death, whenever he shall come, can bring nothing along with him I did not expect long before. We should always, as near as we can, be booted and spurred, and ready to go, and above all things take care at that time, to have no business with any one but oneself. For we shall there find work enough to do, without any need of addition. One man complains more than of death that he is thereby prevented of a glorious victory. Another, that he must die before he has married his daughter or educated his children. A third seems only troubled that he must lose the society of his wife. A fourth, the conversation of his son, as the principal comfort and concern of his being. For my part, I am, thanks be to God, at this instant in such a condition, that I am ready to dislodge whenever it shall please him, without regret for anything whatsoever. I disengage myself from all worldly relations. My leave is soon taken of all but myself. Never did any one prepare to bid adieu to the world more absolutely and unreservedly, and to shake hands with all manner of interest in it, than I expect to do. The deadest deaths are the best. A man must design nothing that will require so much time to the finishing, or at least with no such passionate desire to see it brought to perfection. We are born to action. I would always have a man to be doing, and as much as in him lies to extend and spin out the offices of life, and then let death take me planting my cabbages, indifferent to him, and still less of my gardens not being finished. I saw one die who, at his last gasp, complained of nothing so much as that destiny was about to cut the thread of a chronicle he was then compiling. We are to discharge ourselves from these vulgar and hurtful humors. To this purpose it was that men first appointed the places of sepulture adjoining the churches, and in the most frequented places of the city to accustom the common people, women, and children, 
that they should not be startled at the sight of a corpse, and to the end that the continual spectacle of bones, graves, and funeral obsequies should put us in mind of our frail condition. And as the Egyptians after their feasts were wont to present the company with a great image of death, by one that cried out to them, Drink and be merry, for such shalt thou be when thou art dead. So it is my custom to have death not only in my imagination, but continually in my mouth. Neither is there anything of which I am so inquisitive and delight to inform myself as the manner of men's deaths, their words, looks, and bearing, nor any places in history I am so intent upon. And it is manifest enough by my crowding in examples of this kind that I have a particular fancy for that subject. If I were a writer of books, I would compile a register with a comment of the various deaths of men. He who should teach men to die would at the same time teach them to live. Dicarchus made one, to which he gave that title, but it was designed for another and less profitable end. Peradventure, someone may object, that the pain and terror of dying so infinitely exceed all manner of imagination that the best fencer will be quite out of his play when it comes to the push. Let them say what they will. To premeditate is doubtless a very great advantage. Besides, is it nothing to go so far at least without disturbance or alteration? Moreover, nature herself assists and encourages us. If the death be sudden and violent, we have not leisure to fear. If otherwise, I perceive that, as I engage further in my disease, I naturally enter into a certain loathing and disdain of life. I find I have much more ado to digest this resolution of dying when I am well in health than when languishing of a fever. And by how much I have less to do with the commodities of life by reason that I begin to lose the use and pleasure of them, by so much I look upon death with less terror, which makes me hope that the further I remove from the first, and the nearer I approach to the latter, I shall the more easily exchange the one for the other. And as I have experienced in other occurrences that, as Caesar says, things often appear greater to us at distance than near at hand, I have found that, being well, I have had maladies in much greater horror than when really afflicted with them. The vigor wherein I now am, the cheerfulness and delight wherein I now live, make the contrary estate appear in so great a disproportion to my present condition that, by imagination, I magnify those inconveniences by one half, and apprehend them to be much more troublesome than I find them really to be when they lie the most heavy upon me. I hope to find death the same. Let us but observe in the ordinary changes and declinations we daily suffer how nature deprives us of the light and sense of our bodily decay. What remains to an old man of the vigor of his youth and better days? Caesar, to an old weather-beaten soldier of his guards who came to ask him leave that he might kill himself, taking notice of his withered body and decrepit motion, pleasantly answered, Thou fanciest, then, that thou art yet alive. Should a man fall into this condition on the sudden, I do not think humanity capable of enduring such a change. But nature, leading us by the hand, an easy and, as it were, an insensible pace, step by step, conducts us to that miserable state, and by that means makes it familiar to us, so that we are insensible of the stroke when our youth dies in us, though it be really a harder death than the final dissolution of a languishing body than the death of old age. 
Forasmuch as the fall is not so great from an uneasy being to none at all, as it is from a sprightly and flourishing being to one that is troublesome and painful. The body, bent and bowed, has less force to support a burden, and it is the same with the soul, and therefore it is that we are to raise her up firm and erect against the power of this adversary. For as it is impossible that she should ever be at rest while she stands in fear of it, so, if she once can assure herself, she may boast that it is impossible that disquiet, anxiety, or fear, or any other disturbance should inhabit or have any place in her. She is then become sovereign of all her lusts and passions, mistress of necessity, shame, poverty, and all the other injuries of fortune. Let us, therefore, as many of us as can, get this advantage. Tis the true and sovereign liberty here on earth that fortifies us wherewithal to defy violence and injustice, and to condemn prisons and chains. Our very religion itself has no surer human foundation than the contempt of death. Not only the argument of reason invites us to it, for why should we fear to lose a thing which, being lost, cannot be lamented, but also, seeing we are threatened by so many sorts of death, is it not infinitely worse eternally to fear them all than once to undergo one of them? To him that told Socrates, The thirty tyrants have sentenced thee to death, and nature them, said he. What a ridiculous thing it is to trouble ourselves about taking the only step that is to deliver us from all trouble. As our birth brought us the birth of all things, so in our death is the death of all things included. And therefore to lament that we shall not be alive a hundred years hence is the same folly as to be sorry we were not alive a hundred years ago. Death is the beginning of another life. So did we weep, and so much it cost us to enter into this, and so did we put off our former veil in entering into it. Nothing can be a grievance that is but once. Is it reasonable so long to fear a thing that will so soon be dispatched? Long life, and short, are by death made all one, for there is no long nor short to things that are no more. They which die at eight of the clock in the morning die in their youth, and those that die at five in the evening in their decrepitude, the most and the least of ours in comparison with eternity, or yet with the duration of mountains, rivers, stars, trees, and even of some animals, is no less ridiculous. But nature compels us to it. Go out of this world, says she, as you entered into it. The same pass you made from death to life, without passion or fear, the same after the same manner, repeat from life to death. Your death is a part of the order of the universe. Tis a part of the life of the world. Shall I exchange for you this beautiful contexture of things? Tis the condition of your creation. Death is a part of you, and whilst you endeavor to evade it, you evade yourselves. This very being of yours that you now enjoy is equally divided betwixt life and death. The day of your birth is one day's advance towards the grave. All the whole time you live, you purloin from life, and live at the expense of life itself. The perpetual work of your life is but to lay the foundation of death. You are in death whilst you are in life, because you still are after death when you are no more alive, or if you had rather have it so, you are dead after life, but dying all the while you live. And death handles the dying much more rudely than the dead, and more sensibly and essentially. If you have made your profit of life, you have had enough of it. 
Go your way satisfied. If you have not known how to make the best use of it, if it was unprofitable to you, what need you care to lose it? To what end would you desire longer to keep it? Life in itself is neither good nor evil. It is the scene of good or evil as you make it. And if you have lived a day, you have seen all. One day is equal and like to all other days. There is no other light, no other shade. This very sun, this moon, these very stars, this very order and disposition of things is the same your ancestors enjoyed, and that shall also entertain your posterity. And, come the worst that can come, the distribution and variety of all the acts of my comedy are performed in a year. If you have observed the revolution of my four seasons, they comprehend the infancy, the youth, the virility, and the old age of the world. The year has played his part, and knows no other art but to begin again. It will always be the same thing. Give place to others, as others have given place to you. Equality is the soul of equity. Who can complain of being comprehended in the same destiny wherein all are involved? Besides, live as long as you can. You shall by that nothing shorten the space you are to be dead. Tis all to no purpose. You shall be every whit as long in the condition you so much fear as if you had died at nurse. And yet I will place you in such a condition as you shall have no reason to be displeased, nor shall you so much as wish for the life you are so concerned about. Death is less to be feared than nothing, if there could be anything less than nothing. Neither can it any way concern you whether you are living or dead, living by reason that you are still in being, dead because you are no more. Moreover, no one dies before his hour. The time you leave behind was no more yours than that was lapsed and gone before you came into the world. Nor does it any more concern you. Wherever your life ends, it is all there. The utility of living consists not in the length of days, but in the use of time. A man may have lived long, and yet lived but a little. Make use of time while it is present with you. It depends upon your will, and not the number of days, to have a sufficient length of life. Is it possible you can imagine never to arrive at the place towards which you are continually going? And yet there is no journey, but hath its end. And, if company will make it more pleasant or more easy for you, does not all the world go the self-same way? Does not all the world dance the same brawl that you do? Is there anything that does not grow old as well as you? A thousand men, a thousand animals, a thousand other creatures die at the same moment you die. To what end should you endeavor to draw back, if there is no possibility to evade it? You have seen examples enough of those who have been well pleased to die as thereby delivered from heavy miseries, but have you ever found any who have been dissatisfied with dying? It must, therefore, needs be very foolish to condemn a thing you have neither experimented in your own person nor by that of any other. Why dost thou complain of me, and of destiny? Do we do thee any wrong? Is it for thee to govern us, or for us to govern thee? Though peradventure thy age may not be accomplished, yet thy life is. A man of low stature is as much a man as a giant. Neither men nor their lives are measured by the L. Do but seriously consider how much more insupportable and painful an immortal life would be to man than what I have already given him. If you had not death, 
you would eternally curse me for having deprived you of it. I have mixed a little bitterness with it to the end, that seeing of what convenience it is, you might not too greedily and indiscreetly seek and embrace it, and that you might be so established in this moderation as neither to nauseate life, nor have any antipathy for dying, which I have decreed you shall once do, I have tempered the one and the other betwixt pleasure and pain. It was I that taught Thales, the most eminent of your sages, that to live and to die were indifferent, which made him very wisely answer him, Why then did he not die? Because, said he, it is indifferent. Water, earth, air, and fire, and the other parts of this creation of mine, are no more instruments of thy life than they are of thy death. Why dost thou fear thy last day? It contributes no more to thy dissolution than every one of the rest. The last step is not the cause of lassitude. It does not confess it. Every day travels towards death. The last only arrives at it. These are good lessons our mother nature teaches. I have often considered with myself whence it should proceed, that in war the image of death, whether we look upon it in ourselves or in others, should, without comparison, appear less dreadful than at home, in our own houses. For if it were not so, it would be an army of doctors and whining milksops. And that being still in all places the same, there should be, notwithstanding, much more assurance in peasants and the meaner sort of people than in others of better quality. I believe in truth that it is those terrible ceremonies and preparations wherewith we set it out that more terrify us than the thing itself. A new, quite contrary way of living, the cries of mothers, wives, and children, the visits of astounded and afflicted friends, the attendance of pale and blubbering servants, a dark room set round with burning tapers, our beds environed with physicians and divines, in some nothing but ghostliness and horror round about us. We seem dead and buried already. Children are afraid even of those they are best acquainted with when disguised in a visor. And so tis with us. The visor must be removed as well from things as from persons. That being taken away, we shall find nothing underneath but the very same death that a mean servant or a poor chambermaid died a day or two ago without any manner of apprehension. Happy is the death that deprives us of leisure for preparing such ceremonials.' 